Hi, I'm Caroline, a yoga teacher with a special interest in menopause based in Edinburgh. I'm Dr. Claire, a GP with a special interest in menopause based in North London. Together we are the Menopause Sisters and we're here to guide and support you through your menopause journey. Today I'm really pleased, really happy to have Dr. Katie Munro joining us who is everything we need to know and has lots of information about migraines for us. So it's it's been it's going to be great to chat to you, Katie. Katie was a GP partner in Potter's Bar for 25 years and during this time started having migraine attacks herself, which sparked her interest in finding ways of helping people with migraine. When she left the practice, she started working as a headache specialist GP at the National Migraine Centre, a charity which provides consultations to people with migraine on a voluntary donation basis. She's also brilliantly set up and hosts the Heads Up podcast, which was last year a finalist in the Medical Journalist Awards for Podcast of the Year. And she's written a great book called Managing Your Migraine, which was commissioned by Penguin as part of their Penguin Life Expert series and is aimed at empowering people to manage their migraines and know a bit more about what's going on. Welcome. We are very joyed to have you on the (laughs) the show today, Katie. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. I I try to never pass up an opportunity to bang on about migraine and raise awareness about it and what can be done to help people because it's such a common condition. You say it's so common. I I remember looking back thinking, um, and I spoke to you this about this briefly, didn't I? About being eleven or twelve years old and not knowing what was going on. Yeah. And probably for another six or seven years, not going knowing what's going on. And then got to about 18 or 19 and thought, oh, it's a migraine. Yes. Really interesting. Tell me a bit about how you managed to become a migraine specialist. What was your journey? Um, well, first of all, the personal one. So um, when I eventually diagnosed myself, which took a little while because I didn't really know much about migraine, I uh, I then uh, started to kind of read around. I'm an avid reader and, and explore things. And I went to a couple of study days at the National Migraine Centre ran for GPs and came away going, oh, wow, that was amazing. So many useful tips and practical things. I really want to work there. But I was a, a partner at the time and life was a little bit overwhelmingly busy as I'm sure you understand. Um, and then when I decided to change the, the uh, kind of emphasis in my career, I then got an email from the National Migraine Centre saying, oh, we're looking for GPs with a special interest in headache and mental health. And I'd also been the mental health lead in the practice. So it kind of had my name on it. Uh, and that was that was seven years ago. And then uh, so the way we do the training for GPs who are interested at the moment is, um, of course, it's all gone virtual because of the lockdown and the pandemic. And so we, we now train people up. Um, so people working with us may or may not have had experience of seeing patients with headache, but we do uh, pre-recorded webinars, live webinar tutorials, and get people to sit in virtually like this. So they're sort of lurking in the side of the screen with their video off and their microphone off while we do the consultations. And then uh, that work seems to work very well. I think the other benefit of going virtually is that our patients at the National Migrant Centre come from all over the UK and they can self-refer. So when we had a clinic in London, they had to ask actually travel and now they can just sit in their little house um but we do lots of video calls and we do lots of telephone consultations as well and it works very very well really and that's a lovely mix isn't it and and just being able to kind of reach as many as many people as possible i'm interested really because um obviously i know that there's a there's a bit of a waiting list to come in and see you yes 
isn't there? But I'm, I'm interested from that perspective, what we as GPs can do about migraines, because I, I wonder how many people we're diagnosing with tension headaches or simple headaches or, you know, and, and are we getting a lot of this wrong? I mean, obviously we need more education around it as, as always, but are we getting a lot of it wrong? Are we misdiagnosing people? Hugely, hugely. So there was a study uh, a while ago now called the Landmark Study, and it looked at uh, primary care physicians and whether or not they were getting it right. And if they saw somebody who was presenting with headache symptoms and they diagnosed migraine, they were right 98% of the time. If they saw somebody with headache symptoms and they diagnosed something else, they were wrong 97% of the time. So most of the headache symptoms that present in general practice will actually be migraine. And there are some key questions to help uh, kind of make that diagnosis. But the commonest thing that people get misdiagnosed with, first of all, I think is tension headache, which is massively overdiagnosed, and also sinusitis. Um, So sinusitis, especially recurrent sinusitis, is very often is actually migraine. So it's really thinking about migraine as being most likely, why isn't it migraine, should be the question I think that people are asking themselves when they're diagnosing. Um, And then there are a couple of things that you can specifically ask. So one of the things is, uh, do you get sensitive to light, Mm -hmm. sound, smells, and movement? And particularly light and particularly movement seem to be really characteristic of migraine. Um, Does it impede your ability to do your normal daily activities? Because of course, migraine is not just a headache. Uh, Migraine is a whole body condition. So it can affect your you can get brain fog, you can get word finding difficulties, concentration problems, fatigue, uh, abdominal pain, gut problems, nausea, vomiting, uh, dizziness, many different symptoms. So it's thinking about that. And uh, and it's really kind of how, how frequently are these episodes occurring? Um, and is there a family history? Because we know migraine is a genetic neurological condition. Um, so people sometimes say, oh, I don't have anybody with migraine in my family. And you think, well, you probably actually do. Because I think, again, there was a study that that kind of really went into family histories. So interviewed the patient and then found all their relatives and said, well, do you, have you ever had a headache or abdominal pain or all these kind of uh, symptoms, which are very key? And most of them unearthed a family history that, and that there are lots of reasons why people don't know that they have migraine. First of all, they may not even bother going and asking. Mm. So if they have it mildly, they just kind of keel over for a day or two and take some painkillers and, and don't ever get the label. Uh, sometimes they, they go and they're misdiagnosed. Uh, and sometimes um, back in the day, People used to kind of, there weren't very many good treatments available. So people just used to put up with it. They get, they can, tended to be called bilious attacks or, you know, just some, one of my bugbears is people say, oh, I just get the normal headaches that everybody gets. And I'm like, no, nobody, it, it, some people never get headache. Yeah. Um, and we would never say, oh, I just get the normal rash that everybody gets. You would go and ask what, what is the rash caused by? And a headache is a symptom. Um, with migraine, it's one of many symptoms. But if you're having a headache, don't dismiss it as just the normal headache. Go and ask, why am I getting this headache? And uh, 
migraine is a condition, it's a diagnosis. It's, it shouldn't be used synonymously to mean headache. So I quite often say to people, let's not talk about, oh, I'm getting migraines. I want them to lose the S and say, I'm getting migraine attacks. Mm. In the same way we'd say, I get asthma attacks. We wouldn't say, I get asthmas. So yeah, there's a lot. I think it's all really to do with trying to improve the understanding and reduce the stigma. People just think that migraine is synonymous um, with a headache, then it gets diminished mm. as a condition. And, and in clinic every week, I hear the most heartbreaking stories of the impact of migraine on people's lives. Um, and I, th I think the more that that's recognized, hopefully the more investment in research and in treatments and the more understanding and we can empower people to, to go and ask for good help. So is there a common thread of triggers, as it were, that can bring on a migraine attack or, you know, or a severe headache? Are there, are there certain things that you find in clinic that people come to you and go, actually, oh yes, if I eat that or if I do that, you know, I often get a migraine or a, a migraine. Um, so there are things, so basically the, the, the genes that people inherit for migraine mean that the brain is always set more sensitive to change. And I think that underlying concept is really helpful to then go forward to understanding what will trigger a migraine. So if you think that your brain is not able to process sensory inputs as well as it should all the time, even when you don't have a migraine attack, then it it becomes obvious that if anything is changing in sensory inputs, that might be light glare, flickering lights, uh, intense smells, sometimes humidity, sometimes barometric pressure dropping. So I say to people, it's about changes in your internal environment. And obviously with women, hormones is a big one. And um, we'll come on to that and talk a bit more about hormones. In children, growth spurts, stress, excitement, all of those things that can change in your internal environment, but also in the external environment. Uh, so air quality can be a powerful. For me, we used to have partners meetings and we used to, somebody used to light candles in their house and make a lovely relaxing ambience for these quite stressful partners meetings. And the fumes from the candles would trigger uh, a, a migraine attack for me very easily. So, Combinations of things changing seems to build up the irritation of the brain till it reaches a threshold. And once that threshold is breached, that's when the characteristic uh, symptoms occur. And they, it seems to be that neurochemicals build up and then they cause electrical activity uh, to flow out over the surface of the brain. And depending on where that goes, depends on what sort of symptoms you may get visual disturbances or some people get a feeling of heaviness in their arm or they may have um, word finding problems uh, and some people will have a headache that's just on one side but other people will say well actually it's over the front and it's by my eye and then it moves over to the other side so just depending on where that uh, it's called um cortical spreading depression because it, it changes electrical charges on the cells. Um, and we know that that's an integral part of, of what a migraine attack is. Um, so we're learning more and more about migraine all the time. And, and the more we learn about it, the more likely we are to get really helpful, effective 
treatments. I think what you said there, Kate, is really interesting because we often think about, um, and I know that I'm a culprit in doing this, is saying, well, what, what do you think your triggers might be? But actually, what, what you're just explaining is that we know that triggers can be cumulative and can start long before you actually get a symptom, really. Yeah. So that migraine attack can start when, when you're not having any symptoms and then suddenly the symptoms come. So it can be quite difficult, can't it, to identify those collection of triggers? Yes, I think we also have to be aware, be, be aware of shaming people, guilt tripping them. Because I think if we if we uh, are banging on too much about triggers, then people think, oh, it's my fault because I haven't done everything right. Um, and it's it's not their fault. It's never their fault. It's migraine is a genetic condition. Um, but sometimes knowing about triggers can be helpful. Um, and I say to people, the other thing people don't always realize is about the phases of a migraine attack. So a migraine attack doesn't start when you get that headache. It can be starting anything up to two days before that those symptoms are revealed. So if people are looking for triggers and thinking, you know, what could I do going forwards that might make it less likely to have an attack? And that can be worthwhile. It's worth being a migraine detective, keeping a diary and then sort of thinking, right, in the two days before I got that attack, what was changing? And that can be quite helpful. And some of the things you can affect and you can then you know, make sure that you go forward eating regularly. And it seems to be the consistency of blood sugar, the fuel to the brain being nice and steady throughout that 24 hours, which is probably more important than specific food triggers. Going back to what you were asking, Caroline, about food triggers, people often desperately looking for the trigger. Oh, if I can stop eating citrus fruits, maybe I'll never get one again. Uh, or if I give up coffee. And I had somebody uh, yesterday who said, oh, I've given up coffee for 10 years and I love coffee. And she still had migraines. So it wasn't the coffee. Um, so it, it may be, I mean, caffeine is interesting. We can talk about that if you, if you wish, because caffeine, caffeine is a very mixed picture. Um, but uh, I think it, it can be a rather fruitless and depressing task trying to look for everything that you can fix. Um, if, if you have a food trigger, which is definitely something that gives you a migraine attack, it will actually be quite obvious. So I have a friend who um, every time she eats a satsuma, she gets a visual aura within an hour, every time. Has somebody the other day had the same with banana? She said, every time I eat banana, I get a visual aura or, or a migraine attack. So if that's the case, obviously, don't eat those things. But in most people, it's much more about having that even blood sugar, having a low carb diet, preferably slow release energy carbs, more fat and protein and having snacks and often a bedtime snack can be really helpful because if you think about, especially in kids, if you think about kids having their, their evening meal around maybe 5.30 or 6 and then nothing to eat for hours and hours and then the following morning possibly running out the house without having breakfast and then they do sports at school and they're coming home going, ah. Um, so we do a lot on lifestyle uh, and we do a lot about routine because of course change uh, is sorted out by having routine as much as possible um, going to bed at the same time waking at the same waking at the same time especially seems to be helpful and and getting out into daylight early in the day if you can 
and just trying to control the things that we have a bit of control in an ideal world. And, you know, we don't live in an ideal perfect world. And often um, women with children are, are not able to have good quality regular sleep, you know. Um, so I think we have to be realistic and, and say, well, there's a lot you can do to help yourself. Um, but it's not the whole answer. Mm. I, sleep, I want to come on to sleep in a moment, Katie. But I, also, I wanted to find out from you, particularly around the perimenopause and menopause, Yes. Even, even when perhaps a woman starts her periods, why why are women more prone and why to migraine attacks? But also why are women why do peri, why do migraine attacks get worse around the perimenopause and menopause? Not for everybody, obviously, but for many women they do. For many women, I think uh, often um, you know in menopause clinics, about sixty percent of the women there will have menopausal symptoms that include worsening migraine, and we see lots and lots of women. And of course, the perimenopause uh, can occur for an, a number of years, you know, many years before the last menstrual period. So hormones are a key factor in women, and it seems to be fluctuating levels of estrogen that is the key. So if you think about uh, when a woman starts having periods, that's often around puberty, a time of fluctuating estrogen. Then period cycles don't necessarily start in a very nice regular fashion so they can be so that's a very peak time a lot of women get menstrually related migraine and those attacks around the the, the menstrual period tend to be a bit more intense a bit harder to treat and of course then as you come into the perimenopause um the hormone levels don't diminish in a nice, gentle, linear fashion as our ovaries uh, stop producing estrogen, they go down a bit, up a bit. It's a bit like a roller coaster and uh, unpredictable and affected by other stresses around that time, which, you know, as a perimenopausal woman, we may also be dealing with career issues, family issues, teenage children, elderly parents, Irregular, you know, poor sleep because of night sweats, um, lower energy, fatigue, all of those kind of things. Often, um, you know, people's weight may change. They may find it harder to get time in their day to exercise. So I think all of those things can contribute. But it's the falling levels of estrogen that seem to be the trigger for, for women who have migraine without aura. Rising levels of estrogen tend to trigger more migraine with aura, interestingly. And so, you know, that's a, a very much uh, why women in the perimenopause tend to get more frequent attacks. And the other thing we find is that people will say, I used to have attacks like this, but now they're slightly different. Um, and one of the symptoms which we hear more often is dizziness. So vestibular migraine, uh, where women are feeling really dizzy, uh, which is a horrible debilitating symptom to have, uh, tend to be a bit more common in the perimenopause. And the headaches can be longer, they can be more painful. They start coming closer together. You know. And if you think about, again, going back to those phases, We've got that couple of days where it's building up, where people may feel very tired or have yawning or feel irritable. Um, the aura phase is an hour, uh, and not every, only about 25 to 30% of women get, or, or people with migraine get aura. The headache phase can last anything up to three days. And then the postromal phase, or 
maybe called the hangover phase, is where you still feel like you've been run over by a steamroller. And, uh, and that, again, can impact. So if you think about that, there's maybe five, six, seven days impacted by one migraine attack. If you then get another one coming along quite quickly, you know, life gets very tricky um, for women. And that's where re having really good understanding uh, can be really helpful and smoothing out hormone levels, which is why I'm a huge fan of HRT. <laughs> <laughs> we, we do love HRT. HRT and, um, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking about the fluctuating of um, the estrogen you've just been talking about there, um, Katie, and how you know that really just genuinely affects the brain, affects the hypothalamus. And so it's fascinating. I, I often quote Dr. Lisa Moscone and how she says, you know, that. Uh, Estrogen is the conductor of the brain, but you can see then how that 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 links into headaches, migraines, and that. And as you say, you know, when you've you've got these reoccurring and these fluctuating hormones, the exhaustion of just dealing with it and coping with it, yeah. and possibly the lack of sleep around any other symptoms of perimenopause and menopause is just exhausting. Um, and it's almost like it becomes a vicious cycle. Yes. I think that that's right. And I think the fatigue, um, the fatigue can be dismissed by women, you know, of, of partly thinking, well, you know, of course I'll be tired. I'm a busy lady and I've got, you know, and I'm getting into the menopause, so I'm going to be tired. And um, But I think the fatigue of migraine can be as if you've been unplugged, honestly. It's, it's, it's not just feeling tired. It's, it's if you absolutely have are exhausted and that can be throughout all those phases you know and the brain fog not being able to think clearly word finding problems memory problems so i feel as as headache specialists any headache specialist should also be menopause specialists because so much of what we're doing is saying well let's let's get your hormones sorted and actually, for some women, that can be the answer. Um, so having really good menopause advice and perimenopause advice is really crucial. Um, and that might be as early as in your sort of late 30s uh, or even younger. But most women, certainly in your 40s, if you're concerned your migraine are getting worse or if you've got any of these other perimenopausal symptoms, Louise Newson obviously has been a champion, championing information about perimenopause and, and her balance app I know has been downloaded a gazillion times. And I think, you know, the more that's why I'm a real passionate advocate of, of people empowering themselves by getting information. Get information, understand what's going on, because then you can do something about it. Yeah. And the Balance app is great for just tracking your cycle as you come through perimenopause and, and postmenopause. So you can begin to track it quite easily on your phone. Obviously, it's free to download, but then you're able also to print it out or just have a look at look at the patterns, can't you? And that helps you help yourself. But also, if you're going to see a, a GP or a menopause specialist or a headache specialist, you can then begin to show them. Uh, and you've got an idea of, of what's going on uh, going on for you. Yeah. And we find headache diaries. Um, I, I, I reluctant call them headache diaries because I think sometimes we should call them impact diaries um, because I think you know we do need to get away from this myth that migraine is a headache it's not a headache it's it's all the other stuff that goes with it so if somebody is getting really bad dizziness uh, and not much headache then they we ask what is your most bothersome symptom uh, and so the diaries are useful to track the most bothersome symptoms uh, and see, you know, what we need to be trying to help and what, what help we can target. A word about oestrogen, it is really important in migraine uh, to have 
a smooth level of estrogen. So we encourage women to have transdermal estrogen preparations, preferably by patch. But some women can't tolerate patches, so they can have uh, topical gels or the Lenzetto spray. But I think, you know, wherever possible, thinking about that smooth blood level of estrogen uh, is really important. And obviously uh, that may need to be combined with progestogen to protect the lining of the womb. So that could be with a Marenic oil or it could be with Utrogestand capsules or, um, you know, depending on on what the woman's um, preference is. Um, in, In younger women who also need contraception, if they don't have aura, they can have back-to-back estrogen-containing contraceptive pills. And that can be really helpful because that smooths out. Uh, They stop having periods, but they also get a little bit of HRT. So that can be useful. So it's really about kind of getting good advice and guidance as to which method suits each individual woman, I think. And we should maybe explain about a patches. It's almost like a continual flow through the skin, isn't it? And and a gel you would apply once or perhaps twice a day. Yes. Yeah. Uh, There is a myth uh, that I still hear repeated by some uh, patients. Oh, my doctor said, because I've got migraine with aura, I can't have HRT. And that is a myth. Uh, So if you have been told that, challenge it. (laughs) Uh, You can have HRT even if you have migraine with aura. What it comes from is the fact that if people have migraine with aura, they can't have estrogen-containing pills, contraceptive pills, uh, because the two things together do give a slightly increased risk of stroke. Um, But that's not the case with the transdermal through the skin preparations of HRT. It's really helpful to know, isn't it? Because often even just knowing about the the combined pill for some for some women who are sort of you know wanting that as a contraception knowing that you could potentially take that if you have a migraine or migraine attacks but you don't have aura that's a really yeah really clear message isn't it yeah often yeah that can stabilize, stabilize those levels quite quite well yes um, i wanted to cu- quickly come back to sleep because you mentioned yes. and obviously in the perimenopause of menopause sleep can be significantly effective and that's for a variety of reasons we've mentioned hot flushes needing to get up and pee the entire time you know just feeling generally unwell having restless legs a whole host of symptoms yeah when you add migraine attacks into that we're thinking about sleep and getting good quality sleep aren't we but are there is there evidence to say that if you have that lie-in for example or if you if you change that routine is there any evidence to suggest that that's worse for someone that has a migraine attack? Definitely, yes. So what we're talking about ideally is going to bed at the same time, waking up at the same time and having deep, restful, restorative sleep throughout the time that you're in bed. Uh, So anything that disrupts that, so broken sleep definitely can make migraine attacks more likely and prolonged sleep. And so I I do feel sorry for teenagers, especially because often, Teenagers need a bit of an extra line at the weekend, but have to get up for school during the week. Um, and the same with any of us who are working during the week. You know, maybe I'll be that you think, oh, I don't have to get up. I'll stay in bed a bit longer at the weekend. But you're more likely to get a migraine attack off the back of doing that. But there are a number of tips about good quality sleep. Um, we did a podcast episode uh, on migraine and sleep uh, as part of my Heads Up podcast because it is so important. Um, one of the things uh, is to keep the bedroom uh, for sleep 
and sex. <laughs> um, and don't be sitting and watching TV or or on your phone or all of those kind of things that uh, sometimes people do, um, so that you're programming your brain to go nicely relaxing once it you're a bit like a Pavlovian reflex. <laughs> you know, if you go into bed and you uh, you know your brain knows that you're going off to sleep, that can be helpful. Having low light levels for the hour before, sometimes having a hot bath, and then uh, we often recommend a magnesium supplement. Uh, so magnesium is known to be helpful for reducing the irritability of the brain in people with migraine. Um, and you can have magnesium through either taking capsules or tablets or powder. Um, there are different forms. And the one that um, was studied was the magnesium citrate, but that can be a bit laxative. So I normally warn people and say a bioavailable magnesium formulation like glycinate or the magnesium malate, but you need to have it in high dose and take it for about three months before you can really judge if it's helpful. Um, and I suggest that people take that in the evening because it has been found to improve restful sleep as well. Um, it's also good for leg cramps and things like that. You can also chuck Epsom salts in the bath if you're having an evening bath. Um, and you can buy magnesium oil spray for kind of tight neck and shoulder muscles. So lots of ways of using magnesium. But you said, uh, Claire, about restless legs. And restless legs is a linked condition with migraine. And um, very commonly, restless legs is really helped uh, by by taking iron supplements. So if you're concerned about restless legs, it's definitely worth just getting that iron level checked, your hemoglobin, your ferritin, uh, and seeing whether you need to take some iron supplements and it can make such a difference. And also help um, fatigue iron, doesn't it? You know, if you, if you do yeah. feel, it's always worth checking iron. If you're feeling particularly tired, just check your iron levels. Um, yes, definitely, well. definitely. In people who have insomnia, really, you know, struggle getting off to sleep, then there are things uh, like cognitive behavioral therapy is the gold standard for insomnia, special uh, advice and guidance. And there are books and, and, uh, and therapists who can help with that. And um, failing that, then sometimes we find that melatonin supplements are helpful um, because they can be useful for people with migraine as well. So yeah, I think good quality sleep is really, really important. And I know as a, as a yoga teacher, I often guide something called yoga nidra, and we call that, a, um, it's it's like conscious rest. Yeah. Often people find those are really helpful, and there's plenty of recordings on, on YouTube and, and different apps. But actually, it's just a, a guided rest sequence where you perhaps begin to focus on your breath and just some muscle relaxing techniques as you lie in bed. And I found that a lot of clients have found that incredibly helpful to begin to ease the the body to begin to just slow and soften the breath and uh, and find they have a, a better night's sleep with, with that with that practice as well so mindfulness meditation can be helpful as well can't it and so yeah. apps like uh, headspace and yes. calm exactly uh, it can be really useful i think yeah i agree yeah. Caroline, I, i've i've done a bit of yoga nidra personally yeah. and it's very restful and relaxing it just some of do you find that some of these techniques take a little bit of practice yes and um, people feel a bit they, I hear them sort of saying, oh, I can't do it. It's too, I'm rubbish at it. And yeah. I, it's not about that. It's yeah. about just the fact that you're trying to do it. Yes, uh, absolutely. And keep focusing back on the breath and keep just keep reminding yourself that you're 
not trying to think about what you're going to do tomorrow, what you should have said to the neighbour earlier on or whatever. <laughs> exactly. And Counting it, your breath. And that's why it's called a practice. You know, you've got to practice. And actually, I often say to people, you can't be bad or good uh, anything connected with the yoga that's the beauty of it you know it's a practice so it's a, some days are going to be better than others and often with the yoga nidra or a breathing technique any sort of relaxation technique i recommend somebody has something in their hand so something tactile now that could be something to gently squeeze i like to use a, a kind of little crystal i've got that just is a bit more rough or a bit more smooth something that you could you've got so that if your mind does wander off or you feel frustrated or you're just finding it hard to focus you've got something physical in your hand that just brings you back into that present moment and that's a really helpful tool to have i did some meditation the other morning with my daughter's dog sitting on my lap so does that count <laughs> absolutely because actually well, you, you probably you know you'll know this you know having a dog or a cat and gently even stroking a dog or a cat i sometimes i do i've got hens so sometimes i just stroke my hens but you know that soft tactile feeling can be very calming for the nervous system and in turn that's helping you relax it might even just help it reduce any any stress in your body as well so yeah the other thing as we're talking about those kind of alternative uh, type of exercises is um tai chi there's actually some quite good evidence that tai chi regular tai chi can help with migraine and i think it's also very helpful for people who have other kind of linked conditions like fibromyalgia yeah. um, which gives you that whole body pain and that whole body fatigue because sometimes doing yoga for people like that it, it, depending on the yoga teacher yeah. uh, can be a bit intensive tai chi can be a gentle way of getting some movement and some meditative movement into your life. So, yeah, it's well, and again, it's about finding what suits each individual person isn't exactly it? it's, it's finding it's finding your you're the way that's going to help and support you and you know there like you say there's so many different styles of yoga i'm not going to recommend somebody goes to do a hot or an ashtanga class it's very strong you know yeah. you want to do a restorative lying down class yeah. <laughs> very very gentle class or maybe even just a breathing class you know just to begin to learn some techniques to be able to calm yourself down in the evening but if you if you feel the the headache or the migraine attack beginning to arise sometimes a bit of breath work can just help you a little bit there um just to, to soothe the nervous system yeah I, I just wanted to briefly mention that obviously we're you know when we're thinking about migraine attacks and meditation and all the relaxation techniques which are really helpful particularly perimenopausally I think because it can help with all the other symptoms as well mm-hmm. I wanted to briefly come back to the, the idea of migraine attacks being genetic because we should as perimenopausal menopausal women be looking at our children too shouldn't we Oh, and yeah. I briefly mentioned that just because there's going to be lots of perimenopausal women listening to this who have children. Yes. Maybe a boy, maybe a girl, but just wanting, Katie, your opinion on that and what we should be looking out for in our children. Yeah, I, this is really important, Claire. And I always, when I'm talking to people and asking about family history, I always say to them, think about your ancestors and your descendants, because it is genetic. And so, and people, um, we know that people commonly don't think about migraine in children. So many, many children just don't get diagnosed. And one of the reasons is because migraine uh, may present rather differently in children. So they may have abdominal pain. Uh, They may go through uh, periods where they have cyclical vomiting. Um, There's some evidence increasing that infantile conic uh, is a flag for a child that is more at risk of getting migraine attacks later in life. 
And of course, a peak time for uh, children to start developing migraine is around puberty, around 14. But I mean, my youngest patient at the National Migraine Center was four, and he had had migraine since he was three uh, with visual aura, which, um, you know, was quite distressing for him, quite scary and very worrying for his mum. But it was relatively simple to give some good advice and to improve things for him. And that was largely around eating regularly and having a bedtime snack and being aware. So I think having that diagnosis can be so, so helpful because that then enables the child to know that they're not alone. They understand what's happening. Parents can stop being so worried that there might be a brain tumor or something underlying it. And then as, of course, teenagers coming into secondary school and then towards exams, such a period of change. So changing schools, maybe changing friendships, maybe changing subjects, maybe the routine is not ideal for their migrainey brain. And uh, and then the, uh, the stress of uh, exams and decisions about university or further education, whatever they're doing. So it's a peak time for things to kick off. But it's relatively simple to give good advice on how they can mute things down. And that might be lifestyle advice, or it might be taking some preventative either supplements or medications, or we also have now neuromodulation devices and injectable um, things which can be helpful. So, so much can help. Um, So I do really feel, I love seeing children. I love sort of informing them and educating them and saying to them, this is your, you know, this is something that you are going to manage and this is how you do it. And I think if you're a perimenopausal mother out there, it's so important to be looking, and you're you're obviously suffering from migraine attacks, it's so important to be looking at your children. Mm. It can have a devastating impact just just on on school. School, can't it? And, and school. Yeah. It's just really interesting talking about the idea of balance in the body, that idea of homeostasis as well, and and that idea of your body liking a bit of routine. You know, we know that children often thrive with routine. You know, the same bedtime, that kind of idea of, of a bedtime routine. Maybe that's a bath or or, or a bedtime store, whatever it might be. And just that's that's I'm picking that out particularly around children, but also what you were saying, Katie, around adults as well. You know, finding that routine for bedtime to get a good night's sleep. And actually the body does thrive on the kind of regular habits that you begin to create. The other thing just to mention, which is really important for children, but also uh, for us as we get into workplaces, is having that awareness of uh, migraine and how it affects people from the people that we are coming into contact with. So that might be in schools, might be teachers, or it might be in workplaces, so employers or colleagues. And if they understand what migraine uh, is about, then we can get reasonable adjustments. So this phrase, reasonable adjustments, um, can be really, really helpful. So migraine, especially chronic migraine, uh, can be classed as a disabling condition under the law under the Equality Act, um, children with chronic migraine uh, are entitled to have a healthcare plan worked out by the school. Um, but in, an, in a workplace situation, occupational health or employers are 
um, encouraged, uh, strongly encouraged and should be making reasonable adjustments. Now, the trouble is that is prone to interpretation, um, but it might be something very simple, like making sure that the desk of the employee or the child isn't sitting in the glare of the sun or isn't next to a very hot radiator. Or maybe they need to have breaks to be able to go and have something to eat and have a drink. Or maybe they need to have a quiet environment if they're doing an exam uh, or a little bit of extra time if they're, you know, um, so it's anticipating things for children. Because if you anticipate these events and put in place some strategies, that really helps reduce anxiety. And anxiety, of course, can trigger um, things. So again, with, uh, with women in the perimenopause, if, you know, if you're anxious about whether you're going to get a migraine attack and whether you're going to let your work colleagues down, or you maybe don't want to take that promotion because you may be impacted by migraine attacks more frequently, having knowing that your employer is understanding and knowing that you've got control by having good acute remedies and good preventative strategies uh, can just take that anxiety out of it. It's nine times more common uh, that people have anxiety when they have migraine, and it's often it's anticipatory. And I know you mentioned CBT, but in, in that instance, really helpful to, you know, CBT can be incredibly powerful um, yeah. to begin to sort of almost change the mindset around it as well. Yeah. People often feel quite guilty about having migraine and being a burden. They sometimes feel that they need to keep it a secret. And I had a lady who had one of the new um, CGRP drugs and it transformed her migraine that she'd had for 30 years. And she said, in all that time, I've never told my friends. I've never told my friends. I, I just make up excuses when I have to cancel. They must just think I'm really flaky. But, you know, why we have this guilt and shame around migraine, it's, it's very interesting. And I think it's something we really need to fight because it's, it's a genetic neurological condition that is not anybody's fault. Um, and the more we can understand it then as a society, uh, the better I think yeah and move away from it's just a headache that's the problem oh, definitely why are you taking time off for just a headache yeah, yeah. completely yeah, I think we're going to have to wind it up at that point, but I feel like that's a really good point to finish our chat with Katie. Thank you so much for taking the time today to chat to us about headaches, migraines, <laughs> everything around everything around that topic and and how it's possible to help yourself. And maybe you can tell us a little bit more for how to reach out to the, the headache clinic you, you, you're part of. Yeah. Um, so what we because we have a long waiting list at the moment, um, we are we've recruited lots of doctors and we're doing our best to, to work on that. But initially, I would say to people, have a listen to our Heads Up podcast, uh, because you can get a huge amount of information. Sometimes that's all people need. I would put in a little plug for my book because um, lots of people have said uh, that my book has been helpful as well. And uh, that's on all the normal bookshops websites and and so on and then if they if people are still struggling and they they want our help then if they go on our national migraine center website and that's nationalmigrainecenter.org.uk there is an online booking form so you just need to fill in their details and the admin team will get back to them and sort out uh, arranging an appointment and we ask because we're a charity we do ask for a voluntary donation to try and help us cover costs but um 
we do need, because we get no NHS income, we do need some people to give donations. But what, what I don't like to hear is people saying, well, I can't afford to come. Um, so if you need the help, then come. But uh, if you can give generously, that really helps us to stay open. <laughs> so, yeah. Fantastic. And people can self-refer to that. Um, yes. Yes. Service. If they can, if they can gather some information about what they've tried in the past, and um, usually GPs can give a printout, that sort of thing. That's really helpful. But you don't need to have a referral letter from a GP. Um, just just refer yourself. Thank you so much, Katie. Lovely to meet you both, and thank you again for the invitation.